0: Anthony Doerr, thank you so much for joining us on Poured Over, your new novel, your first after your Pulitzer Prize winning novel, All the Light We Cannot See, is out today. It's called Cloud Cuckoo Land. It is extraordinary. It is three stories wrapped into one. It's a book about a book. We are going spoiler free in this conversation as a reminder because the book is on sale today and it is a joy to read. So Anthony, thank you so much for joining us on the show.
1: Oh, thanks so much for having me, Miwa. It's a joy. This is so exciting. I've been waiting
0: to talk to you about this book. Let's set it up for readers. Let's talk about Constantinople in the 15th century. Let's talk about present-day Idaho, and let's talk about the future. All
1: right. Yeah, the book's set in the past, present, and the future. The way into it, since we have time, I'm going to take my time. The way into it for me was, I was writing this novel called All the Light We Cannot See, part of which maybe 60% of that book is set in a little town in Brittany, France called Samalo. It's encircled with two kilometers of medieval walls. And Saint-Malo became part of this megalomaniacal project called the Atlantic Wall that Hitler was trying to build. This insane, like all tyrants try to build these walls. It's like from all the way down the western coast of Norway, Netherlands, Denmark, all of France, like 2000 plus miles, the series of fortifications. Everything I would read about the history of medieval walls in particular, but just the history of humans building walls, would mention the walls of Constantinople. And I knew nothing about them. It would be like, like, what are they even talking about? In my high school education in Western civilization, we'd go through Greece and Rome, the fall of Rome, and then literally snap your fingers and we're at the Renaissance. And as if, you know, and you just assume as a kid, you're like, well, those must have been some boring 1,000 years. (laughs) So I love my job because I get to rectify my... Millions of ignorances about things, and I still, of course, die ignorant about nine hundred and ninety-nine thousand of them. But it was a great chance for me to just kind of figure out what the heck was Constantinople. So I printed out a drawing of the walls of Constantinople, a fifteenth-century engraving, just off the internet. Pasted it or taped it to the wall beside my desk, just as a kind of visual reminder, like, oh, you're going to want to learn more about this someday. And so as all the light was entering, edits before I came out, I just started reading. Started with a book called 1453. By Roger Crowley, and just trying to understand the role of these walls. And the 15th century was such an interesting confluence of disruptive technologies because the printing press arrives around 1450 in Europe. And gunpowder, which had existed in China and was used as a weapon much earlier, flows into Europe also. The walls of Constantinople were are about five miles long, the land walls, and they stood for 1,100 years. They withstood 23 sieges. They were the preeminent defensive technology in the world. And then along comes gunpowder and this really nimble thinking Ottoman sultan named Mehmet, who, like all young people, is much more ready to adopt new technologies. And he's like, hmm, what if I build huge weapons and smash these walls? And this is a really coveted geographic location. The fact that the Byzantine Empire didn't fall for so long allowed it to accumulate literally insane wealth. The example I keep giving folks is that the The gold mosaic and the vaulting of the Hagia Sophia had four acres of gold inside of it. And all kinds of wealth also because of the location like trade, fur trade and timber from the north and spices from the east and oil from the Mediterranean. All these things are converging and flowing through Constantinople. So it's a jewel of a place for a sultan to capture. So he brings these mega cannons like a Star Wars death style weapons. There are psychological weapons as much as physical weapons to the walls. So at the beginning of this novel, here's my long answer to your question. I'm just telling a story about a girl inside the walls and a boy outside the walls. A structure sort of like for the first eight months anyway, sort of like all the light we cannot see. I have a girl who's a very capable person, but she's trapped inside of a siege. And I have a boy outside and his name becomes Omir. And he's conscripted with his two oxen to drag one of these super cannons, which were very real things all the stuff in the novel about the forging of these cannons, all this stuff was real. oxen were the vehicles of the medieval world, and they bring and drag this big cannon. Okay, but here we go, Miwa. I'm still on your first question. It's not until I start reading about book culture in Constantinople that I feel like I've tapped into something that can sustain my next project, a years-long project, because among all the gold and silver and ivory and and human capital slaves that are brought through Constantinople also are books. And because of those walls, these libraries, the imperial libraries, monastic libraries, and private libraries of the city are allowed to grow without being disseminated or dispersed or destroyed. And so there were even lending libraries inside the city for a long time. Women were encouraged to be literate as well. So there's a real reading culture inside the city. And this is the place where the Greek and Roman classics, the things we think of as the classics, are surviving as they're deteriorating everywhere else in the world. We have about 55,000 ancient Greek texts that you can look at today, 40,000 plus of them only arrived in our laps because of Byzantine copies preserved inside Constantinople. As soon as I learned that, I'm like, okay, I've always kind of been obsessed with the fragility of memory. Why do some things last? Who decides to let things last? What heroic acts allow for something old to travel into the now? So I thought, I'm going to show this one manuscript, maybe that got down to maybe one final copy on the earth. I'm going to show how it survives from the 15th century to now. And then about a year or two years into the project, I said, I'm also going to so it land in the future in the hands of a reader. So I invent this girl Constance. She's really the person for whom this book needs to land in her lap.
0: I don't know if people think of books
1: as disruptive technology as well, but they really are. Absolutely. The codex for folks listening, like I'm holding up a a codex i'm holding up hamnet by maggie o'farrell but this thing you know which has really been around maybe the third or fourth century it's just such an efficient Cool technology. Here's this thing: you don't have to plug in. You can drop it. You know these little things. I'd read about the history of the codex, where like you can only fit one gospel on a scroll, and like in these early versions of the Bible. And now you could jam all four gospels and basically the entire New Testament in the same volume. So it's really efficient information delivery. And the most interesting thing about a codex to me is that it can outlive us. That. Uh, If somebody just keeps it dry anyway, and maybe uses some acid-free ink, this doesn't have to be recopied until maybe every 100 or 150 years. And so this idea of information being stored, I think it's really fun to think of walls as a technology or books as a technology. And that maybe, you know, we're always struggling to preserve and to deal with our own mortality as humans. And maybe the best technology we've developed, and it's not perfect by any means, to outlast our own lives is the Codex, is a book.
0: Anna is 12 when we meet her in Constantinople. And she's a very plucky little girl. And she wants to learn how to read.
1: When she's born, 1440s, girls were no longer being encouraged to read. And the empire is in many ways falling apart. And Constantinople is kind of like the last bastion of this huge empire. And yeah, she is basically an indentured servant. She lives in an embroidery house with her sister and she's an orphan. And so she longs to escape the tedium of her job. And she's an imaginative person. There's a lot of me in there. I'm like that. I hate being kind of told what to do. And I'm sure I would like stitching for the first three months or something, but month after month of the, you know, the Byzantine embroidery is this fascinating world you could dive into for months. And they did make unbelievably gorgeous things usually in service of god and often women being told to do things by men but uh that said i don't i think i would be more like anna i don't think i would find holy work and slowly going blind and being hunched over this bench all day so she dreams of escaping and then the opening scene she dreams herself into a bird really a daydreams herself into a bird and dreams of leaving the walls of the city for so many medieval folks the walls of the city really were the confines of their lives and so uh She's just a wanderer and wants to know what's out there. And she's the one who discovers the book. That's right. I think we can say that. Yeah. So she she first sees a picture of a place that might or might not be Cloud Cuckoo Land, a drawing that might or might not be from uh, a story. It might be from Aristophanes' play, The Birds. Cloud Cuckoo Land is a phrase that he came up with. In Greek it's like nephilo kokuya. It's uh, basically uh, the, the birds is the original buddy comedy to idiots, two fools decide. Athens has too many lawyers, basically, and they decide to go found a better city in the sky. It's one of the first utopian narratives in the Western world. This comedy is 2,400 years old. They head out and they meet up with the birds and they found this city in the clouds halfway between the realm of the gods in the heavens and the realm of humans on earth so they can intercept messages between them. And of course, like all utopian narratives, their utopia doesn't quite work out. And so the phrase cloud cuckoo land has often been used in English over the years, over the centuries, really, to mean multiple things. And it's just so rich to me. It's the idea of like, hey, get your head out of the clouds. And somebody who lives in a cloud cuckoo land is kind of living, uh, it's like, uh, hey, Tony, you think the virus is going to go away tomorrow? You're living in cloud cuckoo land. It's kind of a disparaging thing. But there's also something beautiful about utopian narratives. I think they can be quite dangerous, but I think it's really important, especially as I see my, my sons consuming so many dystopian narratives. You know, It seems like every movie they watch, a, a planet's blowing up or a city's burning to the ground or an alien comes and wipes out the, an entire continent or something. I hope we all take time now and then to ask ourselves, what's our cloud cuckoo land? and What is our perfect place? And how can we work a little more to make our place a little more perfect? And all those questions, it's also kind of a middle-aged question for me, you know, like, can we accept that our lives will never really be a cloud cuckoo land? And then there's an, an ecological message for me in there too, that, you know, the way we've been burning petroleum for the past six, seven decades means we've kind of been living in a cloud cuckoo land where, oh, I just turned this dial and my house cools down and there are no consequences. Or I just flew from LA to New York and, oh, haha, I landed. It's amazing. No consequences. That's a little bit of a cloud cuckoo land too. Anyway, all that's a way of saying, yeah, Anna, she's she sees this drawing and she enraptured by the idea of a better place somewhere else, uh, like maybe all humans are. And so uh, once she teaches herself to read with the help of an old tutor, an old kind of steward, a librarian, in a sense, she eventually, and I won't spoil too much, but she does locate a copy of an old text that I've invented by a writer who I didn't invent. His name was Antonius Diogenes. We've lost all of his work, but he was a novelist. Most scholars are comfortable calling these things that were written in the first and second century, second century ce novels they're long prose tales and which stuff happened to characters and he wrote a book all we know about it is we have a summary of it called the wonders beyond Thule." we have a ninth century summary of it by somebody who read a copy 800 years after you know that book was written but the book's lost and that book called the wonders beyond Thule" was 24 books long so i did that inside my novel and it's uh It's really like a traveler's tale with a bunch of mythology wedged in with uh, there may be the first ever trip to outer space written, uh, you know, the first Western science fiction story, in a sense, inside the *Wonders Beyond Thule. And there's a lot of interlocking characters. So I kind of tried to play with all of those things in my own novel and in this text within the text, which is also called Cloud Cuckoo Land. And that's what Anna discovers maybe the last copy on Earth in Constantinople in 1451. or or
0: two. Which brings us to Boise, Idaho in another piece of the novel. And we meet Zeno, who's an immigrant kid to Boise in the 1940s, and that cannot be easy.
1: Yes. Yeah. And he's, uh, I think I can say that he's gay. He doesn't realize it. Uh, I don't think that spoils too much. He doesn't (laughs) necessarily have the tools or the language to understand his sexual orientation uh, for a while. Yeah, he's different. Like all the characters in the novel, they all have differences that kind of set them apart from their peers and their culture. But Zeno loves the library in his little town. It's an invented town in Idaho called Lake port and he has a real meaningful relationship with these two librarians who introduce him to the classics and then later in life and I won't spoil too many of the circumstances but he learns ancient Greek and much much later in life this is when the novel opens actually in his 80s he's working on a translation of this Diogenes text called Cloud Cuckoo Land with kids and they decided to adapt it as a play there's a lot of playfulness there i think i was looking for eras in which these disruptive technologies blend and merge and braid to really disrupt power structures the way printing press gunpowder all arrive in the 15th century i was asking questions about what's happening really right now with all these information technologies the way disinformation's coming in and disrupting Existing power structures. Maybe folks will even think about anti vaxxers stuff that was barely really present in my mind as I was finishing the book. Zeno's living at that time, along with another character whose name is Seymour, who lives in the same town. He's a teenager, the disaffected kid who's really uh, emotionally attached to the environment and the forests around his house. And when he sees what's happening to them, he gets radicalized. And he and Zeno, well, I'll just say they intersect at this library, this little rural ramshackle library in rural Idaho.
0: There's a line, though, from the play that Zeno is working on with these five fifth graders that I wanted to ask you about. You said, there's a new line for a character written in a child's cursive. The world as it is,
1: is enough. Okay, yeah, that's a good question. It's tricky to not spoil anything, but I'll just say that's like my own message to myself. I think... Growing up, child of the 70s, capitalism was insistent on teaching me that if you just got one more product, everything would be better. Or uh, if you could just travel to Bora Bora or whatever, you know, you would reach paradise. And middle age, I'm finding as the book took me seven years to write, my eyes fell apart (laughs) sharing this. I was 40 to 47 years old, writing it. And my kids turn from like these beautiful angelic, like, will you read to us, daddy, kids, to now we have hairy legs. Now we need deodorant. Like, here's how you use a razor, boys. And they're like, please don't come in my room, dad. That's, you know, the way they are now. And so a lot of my journey the past few years, like I think most folks at our age is acceptance, like trying to say like, yeah, today for reasons I don't even understand my neck kills. Maybe it's just because I slept last night (laughs) or now I can't read this menu at all (laughs) because it's dark in the restaurant and I have to get my flashlight out on my phone. (laughs) It's just life. And uh, in the bigger question is really mortality and and the fragility of memory. I mean, if I can get serious for a second, I guess when I was 13, I want to say it was 13, my grandmother came to live with us. My mom moved her in. I knew my mom was undergoing stress, but I didn't really understand all the backstory. And uh, mom says, well, grandmother's been diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. I never heard the word. This is like nineteen eighty-four six or something. Uh, but what I watched with my eyes was this disease just take my grandmother's self. And over the course of the two years she lived with us, you know, she lost her. Everybody knows the story. You know, lost, you lose the ability to care for yourself. She forgot her names. And I think only now am I realizing in my late 40s that that really imbued me with this kind of terror of the fragility of memory, how everything that is Miwa, is Miwa's ability to remember her past. And without that, what are we? What kind of creatures are we? And, and yet, erasure is coming for all of us, whether it's dementia or just death, it stalks us. And you have to kind of embrace that to live. You have to say, it's what makes the finiteness, the finitude, finitude of our lives is what makes it so profoundly sweet that. We only get 75 springs if we're so lucky and you don't remember your first three or four. And so I'm just trying to get all that. I'm trying to accept that the world as it is, is enough. And to say, yeah, my kids aren't going to get into Harvard. And today I didn't get nearly as far in my book as I was hoping to get, but Hey, like I can still make toast with my amazing electric toaster. And I'm not going to make the best dinner for us tonight, but I made scrambled eggs and toast, everybody, you know, and and the world as it is, is just enough. So instead of always questing for my cloud cuckoo land in the sky, I'm trying to say, look at what you've got right here. You may not get to everything. You may not live as long as you hope, but what a gift to get to be here to, to appreciate the astonishing nature of being, you know.
0: I mean, this is something that cuts across all of your books, the story collections and the novels. You write about hope. You write about memory. You write about time. You play with time. This is not a linear novel.
1: Right. Yeah. I think maybe subject for all novelists this time, but maybe not. But certainly for me, you know, I went to a Montessori school where we were making timelines of the earth at a really young age where we're like unrolling. I don't know if you've ever heard of this exercise, but you unroll a roll of toilet paper across, say, a gym or a parking lot. And you work with kids to say, you know, when does single-celled life appear? When do the dinosaurs appear on this roll of toilet paper? When do humans appear? And you're working, you know—you look graphically, you're eight years old or whatever, you look at how long this roll is, and then you're working on the final square for most everything you can even recognize as life. And you're working in the last millimeter when humans show up. And then everything from the Phoenicians and the Mayans to your grandmother's recipes, they're all in this like literally microscopic sliver at the end of the toilet paper roll. I think it was such an important lesson to give us as kids to think the earth is four and a half billion years old, humans have barely been here, and that Even though it's scary to say your life is just a finger snap in the darkness, it's also really empowering, I think. So I've I've tried to use fiction to always try to explore those scales. I was always inspired by, say, like Alice Monroe, who will occasionally just throw a little tiny bit of like Ontario geology in there, but enough that you're like, oh, my gosh. We're so lucky to be here. Or Andrea Barrett, she's wonderful at incorporating just a little bit of science, smuggling it in so that you feel time scales, geologic time scales as well. So, yeah, like the Annals of the Former World, books like that, that nonfiction I just always devour. Anything that gives you a sense of of a kind of overview perspective. It gives you a sense of where we fit in time. And then uh, I love to disrupt time and all the light we cannot see. I'm trying to mimic the chaos of war by almost dropping all the time scales on the floor and building this mosaic up out of them. And yeah, thanks for recognizing that in the short story collections. You can see me trying to play with that too. I never want to suggest that a short story collection is like a place where a novelist learns how to write longer things because stories are their own things but stories are a great place to experiment anyway, to play around with time, moving between, say, points of view. And so that's really what I was kind of pushing my skills to the limit here with Cloud Cuckoo Land. Instead of the A, B, A, B, back and forth structure of all the light we cannot see, we're moving from Werner to Marie. Here I'm moving between five characters and really seven different storylines because I'm keeping the central story of Cloud Cuckoo Land, this book within the book going, and I'm keeping the siege in which Seymour and Zeno intersect in this library going this, you know, while the kids are upstairs making this play. So there's really seven plates I'm trying to spin in the reader's mind. And I'm trying to go touch those plates frequently enough that she doesn't lose track so that they keep spinning in her subconscious while she's dealing with each story in front of her eyes.
0: Let's talk craft for a second, because you do spin seven plates. You do it very successfully. This is not a small book. It's not a small book. (laughs) but craft sentence structure your sentences are so often like cut glass they're perfect so what does i see you shaking your head this is very funny because we're on zoom and we can see each other (laughs) the final show is going to go out audio only but you build from a single sentence so and everyone needs an editor you're great but everyone needs an editor How does your process work?
1: Absolutely, yeah. You just move through like the whole process, and basically, like that's my life. You did it in about thirty seconds. Just like you were saying, the world as it is is enough. My sentences are decidedly not perfect, and I have to get to a place where the sentence as it is is enough. I have to learn acceptance each time because you build these little cloud cuckoo lands in your mind of what today's project could be, what the scene needs to be, and because you're using these clumsy tools that are words. You never get quite the vision in your mind down on paper, and you have to, each day, accept that little bit of failure. There's always going to be a gap between your vision, like the, this music that melts the stars that Flaubert talked about, and this the clunky, you know, symbols that bears clap together, is what he said, you know, that language is. So... Every day, you're kind of failing to achieve your vision, and you just kind of have to keep going. I'm a miniaturist, which is very strange to say in a podcast about my new 600-page novel, but I think I'm building these small things. I love I love novels like The House on Mango Street, if we even want to call it a novel, or it could be a story collection or a collection of prose poems. There's a 1916 novel, I want to say, called Platero y Yo, in Spanish, Platero and I, Uh, By Jimenez, it won the Nobel Prize, or he won the Nobel Prize. And it's all the same kind of structure as House on Mango Street. It's a a guy with his donkey moving through the Andalusian countryside. Each little vignette is beautiful. It's exquisitely made. And yet, when you combine them, they accumulate an even more special power. So I love to spend my days making these smaller things, maybe four or five paragraphs. Try to make them as good as I can. Maybe it takes me two weeks. And then sometimes you have to jettison it. And that's a little heartbreaking. Artistic maturity is about getting rid of stuff that you cared about. But then I usually will actually physically lay them out on the carpet. Uh, but sometimes just on the computer screen, linking them together and seeing what resonances you can build between them by pairing them together. And, you know, of course, I'm not remotely the only writer that does this, Olga, or, yeah, I'm terrible. so I apologize for not pronouncing her name correctly. But, you know, her Nobel lecture talks beautifully about using constellations and how that might be a really effective contemporary art making tool because there's gaps and the reader participates in the gaps between these little jewels along the strand by conjecturing and imagining and making linkages. I don't know. There's something about that structure in Memory Wall. You can see me really starting to learn it and practice it. There's a That was my fourth book and it was a story collection, but there's two really long stories. I guess they could be called novellas. One called Memory Wall, in which I have titled sections in which move between characters. And the one at the end of the book called Afterworld, I'm also practicing. It's maybe 60 pages, I think. And I'm also practicing titled sections, moving between times and characters and seeing if I can link these little carefully made things in a mosaic. Also, Village 113, you mentioned before we went on the air, is similar attempts. And then, of course, with all the light, I was trying it. And maybe Cloud Cuckoo Land is my latest attempt, and I'll keep going. I'm not quite sure what form this new project is taking, but it makes your day manageable, and it allows you to trick yourself into making big things. George Saunders was telling me that's kind of what he did with Lincoln and the Bardo. Was, you know, It's like, if you tell yourself I'm writing a long novel, it's super overwhelming. But if you say, today, I'm just working on this little monologue by this one character, You can trick yourself into making something bigger. Do you miss writing stories? Uh, Sometimes, yeah. I decided on this one, I was going to use my 40s to, when my intellect was functional, (laughs) as functional as it can be anyway, to go again to try to write this big book of everything, to try to get all of my preoccupations in. I have this idea for a funny, almost silly short story. Not silly, but... Something that's only about 18 pages. There's something as a writer, it's so exciting to finish something. You know, All the Light takes 10 years. Uh, Cuckoo Land takes me seven years. It's so nice to have these little provisional <laughs> resolutions when you finish something short. And after years, you begin to doubt whether you can finish anything anymore. And, you know, And you come home and your family's like, what'd you do today? Like, I guess I just worked a little more on this unending project. So finishing things has a real nice feeling. Sometimes that's what that's what I miss most about short stories.
0: I want to go back to Memory Wall for a second. It is absolutely one of my favorite stories. You know, if I were to give you a top ten list of stories, it would be on. But you have a character in there, and I'm I'm bringing this up because for years you reviewed science books for the Boston Globe, and you're a big science reader, and you can see it in the work that you do. But you've got a character who is kind of a fence. He's fencing giant fossils. But he says, science is always concerned with context, but what about beauty? What about love? What about feeling a deep humility at our place in time? Where's the room for that? <laughs> How do we reconcile science writing and all of these things that don't necessarily lend themselves to an elegant sentence, right? I mean, there's some big ideas, there's some big messy things, and yet science writing, when it's good, it's great.
1: Absolutely. So yes, you're right. I reviewed science books for 10 years for them. And I was reading science, not trained necessarily, except for my mom being a science teacher and loving science. But that was kind of a perfect qualification because I was reading science for the layperson books. And so I could say Evaluate is this book readable and comprehensible. And it was such an amazing job because pretty soon they let me choose the books. And so I just got to educate myself in that job. Like I think it was every five or six weeks, I'd write a column with two or three science books in it. And yeah, reading about paleontology and climate change and string theory and challenging your brain. It's just an amazing way to stay as a lifelong learner. I do think like, you know, Dennis Overby from the New York Times, he, writers like that who can translate complex language those communicators can save lives the way we are seeing right now. If you get a really eloquent communicator to talk about the vaccine or the virus, it's such an important job. So yeah, I don't think of them as dry at all. I think of it as another way to communicate the time scales we were talking about earlier and to communicate the wonder and awe and be the majesty of being alive and what we know and don't know and how much we don't know. I think really it's so silly to have the literature, the English building. Of One side of the campus and the science building on the other, and you have to walk a quarter mile between them because they're both ways of investigating what it means to be here and to be alive and asking questions. And, you know, the scientific method is kind of what's saving us. Like the vaccine is just this utter miracle that exists because of the rigorous examination of the scientific method.
0: And that's it, though. Science, too, is stories. I mean, that's the original technology, right? Stories are the original technology. That's how we got the books. That's how we got the science. That's how we got the math and the economics and the histories. It all starts with story. It all starts with, as you've done multiple times in multiple books, it starts with the kids and the wonder of the kids. Anna and Constance challenging. <laughs> I'm quite fond of Constance too. A little bit of identification. But, <laughs> you know, it's here are these kids. And even Zeno, before we meet him, is an 86 year old. And even, Seymour, who's going through a lot, they see the world as it is. They're not looking at it through an adult's lens. Everyone would like to tell Anna how to see the world. Constance's dad and her mother and everyone else in her orbit wants to tell her how to see the world. Zeno's dad, the neighbor who ends up digging, everyone wants to tell these kids how to see, it. and all of these kids are looking back at them saying, "I don't think so. You're missing the. You're, you're missing the point.
1: Yes." I have not totally examined inside myself why my characters have been kids so often over the past, say, 20 years. could be because I became a parent, but I think it has something to do with what you're talking about. There's a proverb I think about a lot. It says, habits are cobwebs at first, cables at last. And as you get older, it's just impossible not to let the scales of habit form over your eyes. We need habit. It's great. It helps you cook dinner quickly in your kitchen because you know where the spatula is and you know how hot the burners get, etc. However, disrupting those habits is essential, I think, to avoid sleepwalking through your life. And the art I'm drawn to most... Shows me whether it's just say Georgia O'Keeffe showing you a flower at this massive scale in a new way, you're like, Oh, right, that's also a flower. And I've seen a flower a million times, but I haven't seen it quite the way she presents it. And sentence writers like Virginia Woolf, for example, or there's a very interesting, strange story writer named Gary Lutz, the sentence writers who Combine language in a way that's so unfamiliar, yet familiar to you that it cracks the habits you're expecting to see. Anytime as a reader, you're reading a sentence, you're guessing because the brain is in such a hurry, always to be efficient, that it's guessing what word will come next. So if you say the sun blanked on the water a lot of people will say glinted that's just or shown and so as a writer i'm often trying to just at the tiniest level disrupt those habits to say what verb can i choose that a reader won't quite see coming i don't want to wear her out by saying the sun murdered on the water or something silly like that but i want to see if i can capture that in a way that might help her see it a little more clearly and maybe see it again for the first time the way children see the world. So. I think I use art to remind myself of the sensations of life, art in any form, especially literature. So I just think choosing child characters is a way to say, let's peel back some of the habit, the incrustation of habit. And for them, the way the way Joan of Arc also recognized the power of gunpowder and was like figuring out really efficient ways to kill English people. She's like a saint now because of that, like young people just readily see things. And so, of course, there's wisdom with age, but I'm just fascinated to see how young people confront and experience and see the world. And I think it's a way for me to try to stay new and young and not waste any of these precious years I have on earth by falling back into habit. You, even the, the movement for Black Lives, all these challenges that have come to those of us who are white-skinned over the past few years are such good reminders. Like You can't assume that the way you thought 10 years ago is the way you should be thinking now. And so I'm always grateful for these challenges, even if they're a little more exhausting. Sometimes you're like, okay, I've got to rethink that. I got to re-understand that. I got to rethink language now. The Washington Redskins isn't allowed anymore. And that's good. It's so powerful. And yet as a kid, you just take it for granted that that's the way the world is. And so that's the way you stay a lifelong learner. That's the way you continually refresh your curiosity is to try to strip away habit and try to always be examining, why am I thinking this way? Is there a way I can evolve and keep growing?
0: What did you learn writing All the Light We Cannot See that you
1: used for Cloud Cuckoo Land? Oh, gosh, good question. There was so much doubt and fear because we had no money trying to go to Europe and be like, hey, honey, like, I I think I'll be able to finish this book, but I have no idea. But I think I have to go to this town called San Malo and look around. And is that okay? (laughs) There's so much fear involved in that, and yet I learned I think that if you just work hard enough and keep the paint wet day after day, eventually you can get somewhere where you're at least partially happy with this project you're making. So I think. It ties in with all the stuff we've been talking about. When you decide to try an artistic project, sometimes it's the fear of not being able to achieve your cloud cuckoo land idea that paralyzes folks at the beginning. You think, I've got this idea for a novel, but the actual making of it seems really clunky and impossible and dirty and difficult. So I think I'm just going to be so afraid to try it. I'm just going to pretend it's still up there in the clouds. And I think what I learned in that is that just keep going. And eventually, you'll have a draft that you can maybe live with for two out of the 24 hours of the day. And then the next day, maybe you can live with it for two hours and 10 minutes. And it's another journey of acceptance, really. Uh, it's never going to be quite what you imagined it is. But by banging it out, you'll achieve something. That was a real lesson for me. What do you want readers to know about Cloud Cuckoo I think that modern life severs us from so many of the systems that sustain us. The easy example is food. If you and I go buy ground turkey, we don't kill the animal. We didn't get feathers all over ourselves. We didn't grind it in the grinder. So we're severed from the source of that food. The way you and I are using technology to speak to each other right now is so slick and glossy and hides all the infrastructure behind it. It was cold this morning, the way I twisted the thermostat before my podcast with Miwa and just magically heated up my office is sort of incredible. And it's designed to hide any emissions, any cost, any extraction costs of heating up my office. So literature... I think, not my silly books, literature itself can remind us of incongruous interconnections at the micro and the macro levels by saying, people who lived 500 years before you cry for the same reasons we cry. And maybe they fall in love for the same reasons we fall in love. And so many books, the books I love, I feel recognized in. I'm like, I felt that way once. I've I've gone through that. So often over time and space, books can teach our imaginations a kind of interconnectedness and that things that you don't think are connected actually are connected. And that's also the lesson of science right now. They're like, you know what? The melting in Greenland is slowing down the Gulf Stream, which is leading to you know, a totally different climate in England. Or the smoke over California is coming from Indonesian peat fires some winter day. And that's because we like coconut oil in our Starbucks products. And so, you know, all these incredibly complicated interconnections, uh, it's really important that we keep reminding ourselves the way our ancestors were readily reminded because they made the clothes that they wore, their neighbor made the clothes that they wore, and they killed the animals that they or their neighbor did. And there's something that we're losing a little bit of that. And I think literature, maybe it's self-serving since I'm a writer to suggest that, but on a literary podcast, but I I like to believe literature can remind us of those interconnections.
0: I'm a bookseller and I absolutely believe that. (laughs) That's why I do what I do. Anthony Doerr, thank you so much for joining us on Poured Over. We're delighted that Cloud Cuckoo Land is out in the world now.
1: Oh, thanks so much, Miwa. And thanks for all the work you do connecting readers with books. Thank you.
2: Hi, and welcome to the TBR Top Off on Poured Over, the Barnes & Noble podcast. We are coming to you from our Barnes & Noble store in Northville, Michigan. And my name is James.
3: And I am Margie.
2: And we're excited to talk to you today with your TBR top-off. We're going to add three books to your list, your to-be-read list, based on today's interview with Anthony Doerr. And I am personally very excited about Cloud Cuckoo Land because I have a few days off and my plan is to go sit by a body of water. Mm -hmm. and read Cloud Cuckoo Land over the next few days. So I'm very excited about that.
3: We should have a contest to see who's going to read it the fastest after it comes out.
2: (laughs) Great idea. I'm into it. Let's do it. (laughs) I will win that contest. (laughs) We have picked three books that are kind of based on the theme of Cloud Cuckoo Land or some of the major themes that we've pulled out. And uh, Margie, you got the first one.
3: I do. So we decided to... uh, It's really hard to pick a book that... um, can be compared to this to tell you the truth. So what we decided to do was to pick some books that had to do with playing with time, playing with structure, that kind of thing. So the first one that I picked is called The Historian by Elizabeth Kostova. This is the kind of novel that goes back and forth in time where you get to the end of a chapter and just groan that it's over, only to be instantly absorbed in the next section. You know, you're (laughs) like, I don't want to stop reading that part. But then you get to the next part and you're just immediately hooked. It interweaves the history and folklore of 15th century Prince Vlad Tepes, more commonly known as Vlad the Impaler, with the story of a professor named Paul, his daughter, and their quest to uncover the secrets of Vlad's tomb. In case you don't know, Vlad the Impaler is basically um, inspiration for Dracula. While Paul's daughter is who we hear from the most, there are actually three narratives telling the story. There's Paul's mentor in the 1930s, that of Paul himself in the 1950s, and that of Paul's daughter in the 1970s. And while the research continues through the decades, Paul's daughter also finds herself dealing with a father reticent to share his secrets, a mother who was thought to be dead but may only be missing, and the chilling realization that Dracula may still be alive, this is a great example of gothic literature. It is chilling, it is exciting, and it is meant to be savored. And you will not want to stop reading it once you start. The second one that I pulled out is a great sci-fi title called This Is How You Lose the Time War. And it is by Amal Amotar and Max Gladstone. And I know everybody doesn't always like sci-fi, but bear with me. So this is a Hugo, Nebula, and Locust award-winning novella. And it is just brilliant. It is written as a series of letters between Blue and Red. They are both members of societies that have figured out the mysteries of time travel, albeit in very different ways. Blue is called a gardener. He is weaving and growing their plans up and down the timeline, while Red is part of the commandment, causing violent disruptions to the gardener's plans. What starts as a antagonistic baiting correspondence starts to melt into what could be considered a friendship, then a compulsion, and then a need. And blue and red twist and turn through the timelines at the behest of their armies, but something starts happening. A little lick of flame that runs through each of them that makes them wonder if things could be different. This was utterly original, completely fascinating, and just so satisfying. I cannot recommend it highly enough.
2: I've definitely heard you talk about that book before.
3: Oh my gosh, it's so good.
2: (laughs) All right. Well, I'm coming in with the nonfiction recommendation. Uh, I'm a big nonfiction reader, and I especially love this selection. So I picked Carlo Rovelli, and he has a book called The Order of Time. He's a physicist. He's from Italy. And he wrote this just mind-blowing book about what does time mean? How do we understand time? Is it just in our heads And so he weaves together uh, philosophy and science and what we know about physics to try to explain the best version that we can put together of how time can be understood. Many of us understand time through movies, right? From Back to the Future, (laughs) Doctor (laughs) Who, lots of other things. And there's there's a great episode of Doctor Who where David Tennant says that time can be thought of as a wibbly wobbly timey wimey goo. And it's he's actually not far off from what uh, Carlo Rovelli talks about in his book. So he asked questions like, why do we remember the past, but why don't we remember the future? Does the future or the past actually exist or is only the present something that exists? I learned a really interesting thing from this book that time is not The same everywhere. Like clocks don't measure time the same everywhere. If you have a clock on the floor versus a clock up on a shelf, the clock on the shelf actually goes a little bit faster. Time moves higher when it's elevated. It's really interesting concepts throughout the book. It's a kind of a short little paperback and it is great. I've read it three times. I still barely understand it and I am completely fascinated by the subject. So, That is The Order of Time by Carlo Rovelli. I highly, highly recommend it. And he has several other books about physics and reality that are also extremely fascinating.
3: That's a mind bender. Sounds awesome.
2: It is. All right. Well, that's it, you guys. That is our TBR top off for this week. I am James, and you can follow me on Instagram at James Reading Books.
3: And I'm Margie. You can follow me at Margie Book Brain.
2: Thanks for listening, everybody. Have a great week. Happy reading. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble
1: production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.